Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. All right, so probably the hardest bit of the sermon is getting you back. Um, so, um, great. So, any, put your hand up. Any, any other fantasy fans out there? Excellent. Just me and you, Kat. Um, so, um, I love fantasy uh, movies, series, uh, particularly ones with epic battles, um, kings, knights, and fantasy creatures. Um, and well, today we are starting a series in the book of Judges, um, which is a kind of like the Bible's equivalent of Game of Thrones, but... Um, <laughs> Just with no dragons and just slightly less sex. Um, Anyway, so if you imagine the sermon series as something found on Netflix, our first episode opens with the arrival of a rather angry and disappointed angel of the Lord. Um, And so let's have a read of what he says in Judges 2, 25. We've got the angel. There we go. Look at that. Does he look angry? Uh, Brilliant. And so in Judges 2 2 to 5, it says this, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into the land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in the land. But instead, you were to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in the land. They will be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. When the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud. So they called the place Bochim, which means weeping, and they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Well, in these few verses, we see a hint at three characteristics of God that keep coming up, um, not just uh, in these first two chapters, but throughout the book of Judges. And these three themes are this, that God is a faithful God. He's faithful to his promises and his people. God is just. There are consequences if we disobey. And God, in his grace, provides a rescue, even though his people rarely deserve it. And there is nothing about these people that makes them special. It is just God's cho- it's just the fact that they've been chosen by God which sets them apart. They are ordinary people with an extraordinary God, just like us. So two years ago, in the final episode of our Joshua series, we left the Israelites in a great place. Um, if you haven't heard that series, do go back and listen to it. It will help with this one, probably. And they had, so the Israelites had entered the promised land and they had won some pretty amazing victories. And now they, but now we find them in a place crying, place of defeat, crying out for mercy. So, how did we get here? Well, let's have a look at the context. So, in the beginning of Judges, verses 1, chapter 1, it says this, after the death of Joshua. So, the book of Judges spans about a 200-year period between the death of Joshua and the appointment of a king by the prophet Samuel, who in some ways is kind of the last judge. But we're not going to get all the way to him. Um, The people of God have been freed from slavery by Moses, uh, well, by God through Moses. His leadership has passed to Joshua, who leads the people into the promised land. And under his leadership, the Israelites begin to take hold of the promises of God and so possess the land. As Joshua is dying, he gives the people of Israel a choice. Follow God or go their own way. 
The people swear to Joshua to obey God after his death. And Joshua says this to them. All right then, destroy the idols among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord, our God. We will obey him alone. So as we start Judges, the question that is hanging over the book of Judges is will the people of God obey him? So let's see. Will God's people be obedient to cleanse the idols from among them? Now, that, the first question would be, what does obedience look like? Well, if we look back to Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 to 18, we see God's original command. God says this, However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So, why did God command the Israelites? Why did he give them such an extreme method of driving out the Canaanites? Well, what we see in this passage is that um, from Joshua, from what Joshua said earlier, cleanse the idols from among you. This is not really about ethnic cleansing, nor is this about economic domination. Rather, it is about the preservation of holy worship. So firstly, this approach was intended to protect the Israelites. God commanded the Israelites to completely destroy the Canaanites nation um, because he knew that the gods would be a temptation to him, to them that idolatry would lead them astray. Now, idolatry is easy. It's formulaic and it's transactional. As humans, we tend to gravitate towards these things that are easy, predictable, and that are focused on us, ultimately. So, if I do a ritual to this god, then I get what I want. That's how idolatry works. And to be honest, this inclination towards that kind of religious structure hasn't really changed, has it? If we look at the popularity of books like The Secret or The Theory of Attraction, if you've heard any of these things, believe, conceive, achieve, nice and easy, right? It's, but life just isn't that formulaic, is it? And God wants something better for us than just a formulaic, transactional faith. No, he, what God wants is to have a genuine, dynamic relationship with a true and living God who loves us. And he knows that ultimately, selfishness isn't good for us or our society. So that's one reason why God commanded the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites. The second is this. This action served as a punishment for evil and to reveal the justice of God. In Genesis 15 to 16, the Lord mentions specifically that the sins of the Amorites or the Canaanites had not yet reached their full measure. So this indicates that the, Amorite, that the Amorite way of life was seen as evil by God, but also possibly by the surrounding nations. So God's destruction of them would be seen as justice. We see this expressed by one of the defeated Canaanite kings. So in Judges 1.7, Adonai Bezuk says, after he's had his thumbs and big toes cut off, which seems like an odd thing to do. But anyway, I once had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, eating scraps from under my table. 
Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. What he doesn't say is, hey, this is so unfair. Why are you being so cruel? He says, this is justice. So it's important to note that all these actions were specific to the particular historical period and the circumstances of the Israelites and the Canaanite culture at the time. This isn't a general God, yay, ethnic cleansing. Um, this is a specific command to a specific people at a specific time for specific reasons, and which we've explored. So with a little bit of historical understanding, we can see that those three characteristics of God still shine through in this command. God's faithful, God is faithful in protecting and providing for his people. He's mercifully just. He gives the nation 500 years between Abraham and Joshua to change. And, his gracious, and he's graciously rescuing in giving his people victory over an enemy that was so much stronger than them. So, that's the context. And answering some of the question of what obedience looks like. So after the death of Joshua... God has set himself up as a faithful, just, and rescuing ruler and has given his people a command to obey. So, how do they do? Let's read on and find out. So, chapter 1, verse 19. The Lord was with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, starting well, but they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. Well, that seems kind of fair, iron chariots. The, the tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people living in Bethshem. The tribe of Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. So the Canaanites continued to live among them. Instead, the people of Asher moved in among the Canaanites, who controlled the land, for they failed to drive them out. As for the tribe of Dan, the Amorites forced them back into the hill country and would not let them come down to the plains. So, they failed. They failed to drive out the Canaanites, and then the Canaanites lived among them, and then they lived among the Canaanites, and then they were forced back. So in chapter one, we see that this reasonable compromise that starts with, well, they've got iron chariots, sorry, we tried, leads ultimately to a place of failure to obey and ultimately to a place of defeat. As we read the Old Testament, what we often see is that the pattern of behavior for the Israelites are also true for us as a church and also true for us in our own personal discipleship. And this pattern of compromise, disobedience, and defeat is one that we might see in our own lives. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever God gives me an instruction, whether it is a command in Scripture or a prompting of the Holy Spirit, there are always plenty of reasonable reasons why I shouldn't obey. Here is a most recent example. So this is a, this is a combination of public confession and accountability. So you can all ask me next week how I did. Um, I keep getting prompted by the Holy Spirit to buy our neighbor a bunch of flowers and some chocolate. However, I have not done it yet. And every time this comes into my head, there are a whole load of reasonable thoughts. It will be weird and awkward. What if she doesn't like chocolate? I mean, anyway. What if she doesn't like them? I don't have time today. I don't really need anyone else in my life who needs help. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> there, there are reasonable reasons, but not necessarily rational ones. So when I, choose in to, when I choose to give in to these reasons, I am discipling my heart into a pattern of dis disobedience in reality. 
I am forming pathways in my brain which will make it easier to say no to God in the future. A decision becomes a habit which becomes a lifestyle, and soon I'm not living a life of victorious faith. I'm living in a place of disobedience and defeat. Now, this example is somewhat minor, but as we talked about last week, if we give into temptation, then sin can become a pattern. And we know that sin is enslaving, or in modern terms, addictive. It is a life-controlling habit. And neither God nor I want that for you. So let's be a people who say yes to God and no to temptation, no matter how reasonable it seems. Okay, so they've failed so far. And then the test. So off the back of this failure, you might be thinking, Why didn't God just lead the people to victory over all the Canaanite tribes under Joshua's leadership? Wouldn't that have been a lot easier? Hasn't God just set his people up for failure? Well, at the end of chapter 2, the author of the book of Judges is expecting you to ask this question, and he answers it. In verse 22 of chapter 2, he says, I did this to to test Israel, to see whether or not they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. That is why the Lord left those nations in place. He did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer them all. So why does God test us? Well, the passage gives us one answer, to see if we will be faithful, to see if we will trust him and if he can trust us. Jesus says in Luke 10, 16, that if we are trustworthy with little, then God will trust us with more. God knows that if he trusts us with more resources or authority than our character is ready to handle, then that can be devastating for us and for the people around us. If we fail the test, then there may be consequences, like there is for the Israelites. But this is because God is discipling us so that in the future we can pass. So Hebrews 12:6 says, For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Now, It's not always easy to go, this consequence is for my own good. But that passage tells us that it's because God loves us and we're his child. But what we see is that God is faithful to both his promises and his warnings. He is just, so he won't spare us from the natural consequences of our actions. If we get caught stealing, then we might go to prison. If we fight a strong army, then we might lose. But in his grace, he always gives us a second chance. He never gives up on us. So the first generation of Israelites after Joshua failed to be obedient because they stopped trusting God. When they failed the test of faithfulness, God stops trusting them, and things go from bad to worse. Not only do they neglect God, but they neglect discipleship. So verse 10 says, After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. So the Israelites end up trapped in a cycle of rebellion because one generation neglected to disciple the next. One generation's nominalism led to the next generation's non-belief. So if, if we look at many of the historic denominations, then we can see this pattern playing out. They start in powerful moves of God, which are sustained by passionate disciples. The next generation take it for granted, and the generation after that leave, and the denomination slips into decline. 
Now, I'm not saying that to criticize them. I'm not saying the vineyard movement is any better, because the reality is only time will tell. We just haven't been around long enough. But it does stand as a striking warning to us. We've been talking about fathering and discipleship and the importance that people who disciple others play. Every one of us has people 10 years or so younger than us who look to us. Are we going to be intentional about investing in them or maybe are we going to sit around and complain about them? Are we going to tell stories about what God did in the past nostalgically or are we going to tell stories about what God has done in the past, expecting him to do the same and more today? So the Israelites fail to remember their God and they slip into rebellion. And they get stuck. They get stuck in a cycle. And we see this in the further verses at the end of chapter 2. From 13 it says this. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtaroth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with the judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were, who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after, the gods, after other gods, serving and worshipping them, and they refused to give up the evil practices and stubborn ways. But once again, we see in these verses that God is lovingly faithful, mercifully just, and graciously rescuing, despite the fact his people don't deserve it. But we also see that God's people are stuck in this cycle of sin and rebellion. We see this cycle repeated again and again throughout the book of Judges. And this is meant to leave us asking, is there any hope for humanity? Can anything truly rescue us from ourselves? The hopeless failure of God's people throughout the Old Testament is meant to point us towards the hope of Jesus in the new. So let's close with some good news. Without a radical intervention from God, humanity is stuck in a cycle of sin and rebellion. But in the New Testament, we see that God steps into history in the person of Jesus, and he becomes the first and only human to pass every test. And through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection, we can be rescued from this cycle of rebellion. Jesus is the faithful one whom every one of God's promises is yes and amen. God is just, and at the cross, Jesus mercifully takes on the punishment that our rebellion deserves. God graciously provides a rescue for each one of us as Jesus is raised from the dead, victorious over our enemies, over sin, death, and the devil. So if you're here and, and you have put your trust in Jesus, then through all that he has done and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to say yes to God and no to sin. 
And if you're here and you haven't yet made a decision to follow Jesus, and you want to join the people of God, then I want to give you an opportunity. As we've seen, and as you'll know if you've hung out with the church at all recently, we are just ordinary people with our own problems. We're not inviting you into perfection, but we are a people with an extraordinary God. And what he is inviting you into is in a relationship with him through trust in his son, Jesus. So just as the band come up, I want to give an opportunity to pray. So maybe if you have already put your faith in Jesus, you want to take this moment just to allow the Holy Spirit to renew what he's doing in your life and remind you of that. But if you're here and you have been with us for a while and you're thinking, actually, today's the day I want to take up this invitation. I want to join this ordinary group of people who have an extraordinary God. Then you can pray this in your heart with me. Yeah, Father God, I, I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you have made a way for me to come into relationship with you through Jesus. I'm sorry for all the times that I have turned away from you. For the times, as we've seen it on passage, I've rebelled. Thank you that in your faithfulness you keep pursuing me. Thank you that, God, you have shown me mercy through Jesus. Help me accept your gracious rescue. Come now, fill me with your Holy Spirit and enable me to walk with you every day. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.